Then turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 104. Psalm 104, which in my Bibles, page 934, maybe it's the same for you, but Psalm 104, just about in the middle of the Bible. It's a lovely companion to Psalm 105. Psalm 105 speaks of God's redemptive work in his people. Psalm 104 sets the context for that by speaking of God's creative power. We're going to see something of that in the providential dealings of God with his world in Lord's Day 10. Lord's Day 10 is the second Lord's Day in the Catechism dealing with God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. That is... um, what we confess, what we have just confessed, I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. Lord's Day 9 deals with what that means uh, in terms of our relationship with the Father. And then Lord's Day 10 deals with how God cares for us, provides for us in his care. And we'll see something of that in Psalm 104. So hear the word of God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. Who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels, spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At your voice, at the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You've set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst, and by them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, where the birds make their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. You appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness, and it is night, in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the moon rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things both small and great. There the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. These all wait for you, that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with good. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. May the the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. 
May my meditation be sweet to him. I'll be glad in the Lord. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. As for the reading of God's holy word. Then turn with me, either in your Trinity Psalter hymnals or in the Forms and Prayers books. Trinity Psalter hymnals, it's page 876. Forms and Prayers, it's page 211. To Lord's Day 10, which has two question and answers dealing with the doctrine of providence. Providence of God whereby he rules all things by his hand. Page 211 or page 876. Here we are given two questions. Question answer 27, question answer 28. And there this is asked of us, what do you understand by the providence of God? To which the answer comes, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. And then we're asked, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? To which the answer comes, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father. But no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved, as the church does believe. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to what is for the believer one of the great comforting words of Scripture, of the revelation of God in his word. But what is for many within our culture and in our communities a terrible word. For many, this is exactly what's wrong with what we believe. How can God, they ask, be omnipotent, all-powerful? How can a good God who rules over all things by his will, how can such a God be so cruel to his people? Maybe you've seen Stephen Fry's comment when asked, uh, by an interview, interviewer, what he would say to God if there was a God. Stephen Fry is an atheist. What would he say to God if there was a God and on the day of judgment he met him and Stephen Fry said something to the effect that I'd ask him about cancer and children and all of this pain and suffering, this pointless and meaningless suffering in the world. What's that about? How dare you, said Stephen Fry, how dare you create a world of meaningless suffering, he asked. That's a question that many within our culture ask as well, or at least that is the problem that they pose to us when we interact with them about the gospel, when we tell them that we believe in Jesus Christ, and we tell them that we believe in a God who's in control of all things. And they say, well, then you have a real problem because we live in a broken world. We live in a world of pain and suffering, and how can you believe in a God that is good, who is over all things, and yet still live in such a broken world? And so it's important to us, not only for our comfort, to be able to understand what Lord's Day 10 says, not only for our own health and well-being, our spiritual comfort as Lord's Day 1 speaks of it, but also for our witness to the world. If we're to answer the world how it is so, we need to have a good answer. The Catechism gives us a good answer in Lord's Day 10. An answer that begins by telling us that providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth, and all creatures. 
It is, says the Catechism, first of all, the ever-present power of God. Now, the Catechism rightly uh, echoes the testimony of Scripture on this point. Scripture says to us rather clearly that God is in control of everything. Listen for a moment to the words of Jeremiah 23 and the verses 23 through 24. There the prophet is given these words by the Lord. Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so that I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? You can see already how the Lord is sovereign in all things. Think of Paul's words on Mars Hill when he preached to the Gentiles there in Acts chapter 17. You remember that event where he says, I'll tell you about the God that you do not know. This is the God I preach and proclaim to you. And in the verses 24 through 28, he says this. He says, God who made that world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Think of that. Nations are defined not by the will of men, but by the boundaries of God. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And we could, if we had the time, go to the book of Job and read from chapter 38 all the way to chapter 41. You know, of course, the story of the book of Job. And you remember how Job wanted an interview with God and God came to him and asked, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now you prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. How would you like it if God said that? If God met you one day and said, Now answer like a man. I have some questions for you. Well, what is the question God asks in chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41? Well, he asks, have you done this? Can you do that? Have you accomplished this? Have you taught the rock badger that? The Lord takes him on this tour of all of creation and shows him the wisdom and the will of God at work. He shows Job that he is the God who not only made everything, but governs all things by his sovereign hand. And in it all, he he asks Job, if you will, where have I made a mistake? Where have I failed? Where have I done something wrong. It's a fascinating reply when you consider that Job begins with the devil standing before the presence of God, God asking, have you considered my servant Job? And well, yes, but you've blessed him with so much, no wonder he worships you. Take it all away and he won't worship or he'll continue to worship me. And of course, that's what happens until the devil says, yes, but take his life from him. It'll curse you to your face. And God says, you may take him to the point of death. You may not kill him as close as possible and he will not curse me to my face and of course Job doesn't God could have said at the end listen Job you don't understand the devil was accusing me of unrighteousness I had to prove myself and you'd committed to glorifying me so I used you because I knew that you loved me he doesn't do any of that he takes Job on a tour of creation and says now where have I failed where have I made any mistake and where have I done what is wrong Job, you must trust me. 
For I am the God who is sovereign and who rules all things. We read that in Psalm 104. That's why we read from Psalm 104. That lovely psalm that describes for us the power of God in creating all things and in ruling all things. Not only did God create, but he rules, causing grass to grow for the cattle, vegetation for the service of men. He opens his hand and all things eat. He hides his face and they are troubled. He turns the lights out and makes it night. He turns the light on and makes it day. All of these things are physical events. We know how they work. But the psalmist says, look and see how God is at work in them. Even in Psalm 139, that so very familiar psalm, that very encouraging psalm, we read these lovely words. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide me from you. But the night shines as the day and the darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. My soul knows that very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious are also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them... They would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Oh, the Bible makes clear exactly what our catechism says, that providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God, whereby he upholds us with his hand, heaven and earth, and all things, all creatures. And when we confess that, we confess that in distinction from a lot of what the world says is true about God. We are not pantheists. We don't believe God is in everything. We're not deists. We don't believe that God created the world, set it to spinning, and now it just functions according to the laws of physics that he, that he created it with. Now we believe that God is both transcendent, but also involved in all the activities of life, such that all of life accomplishes God's purposes exactly the way he has ordained them to. Which means as well, by the way, that when we read in Genesis 1 that God created the trees, the fruit-bearing trees, that, that they bore fruit according to their kinds, as Moses writes. So that the orange tree inevitably produces oranges. And that is no less the providence of God than the crossing of the Red Sea by the Israelites in the Old Testament. Indeed, it's no less the providence of God that the tide comes in and goes out, not randomly, but regularly. And it's no less the providence of God that the lion roars, but doesn't meow. God ordains all things exactly as he has purposed them. He governs them by his will and word. And he uses them so that all things achieve the end for which God has purposed them. That is to say that nothing disrupts the plan of God. Nothing creates a situation where God cannot overcome it, where cannot cannot accomplish his purposes. No, not even, not even the cruelest of all, the rejection of his son, 
can thwart the plan of God to redeem for himself a people. Indeed, in that very moment, the wonderful beauty of God's power and grace, the great comfort that we may have as believers, is to know that even though wickedness was darkest in that moment and the devil gloated over the victory that he had accomplished, yet the Lord was using that very cruelty to bring about the purpose for which he had sent his Son. Now to be sure, this is a struggle for us, finite and small creatures that we are. None of this would be surprising or troublesome if it were not for the dark side of God's difficult providence. The Catechism speaks of that difficult providence too, doesn't it? It speaks of rain and drought, fruitful and lean, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. Oh yes, we believe that God, being so good and so powerful, also controls these things. That God, as he says in his word, brings calamity. That if there is trouble in the city, is it not I, asks the Lord, who has done it? We believe at times, or our expectation, fueled by bad theology, believes at times, that in fact God is in the business of making our lives better. We have bought too much into the health and wealth gospel, despite our rejecting it, Theologically, Practically, we actually think that God's in the business of ensuring that my pathway in life is free from sorrows, trials, and tribulations. Forgetting that we're the ones who brought these things into this life. Well, when God had finished creating, what did he say? But that it was good. Indeed, that it was very good. But we said, we will not abide the goodness, Lord. We bring into this darkness disease, division, destruction, and divorce. It is our rebellion that's brought these realities into this world. It is our rejection of God's claim and goodness that made these things so. And instead of telling God that he should be in the business of ensuring that we don't have to suffer the consequences of our choices... We should stand amazed that it's from these very sorrows that the Lord is delivering us. That he sent his son. And that he is saving us, not apart from this misery, but through them. Indeed, what if our struggle in this fallen world and veil of tears is for our good? And what if at its heart our struggle with God's difficult providences is really a struggle with Control, authority, power is a struggle of the very first sort when the devil said, but you can be free of him. You can be God. You can be autonomous. You can define your reality. What if our struggle is merely evidence that deep inside of us, we think God should serve us? Forgetting that we have been created and redeemed to serve him. You see, we need to understand that the doctrine of providence, which is clearly taught to us on the pages of Scripture, presents us with a very challenging question. And that question is, do we believe this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Understand that it would be terrifying to know that God is exactly as he says he is in the word of God. And if we rejected him, 
I think that's why the world so often struggles with this question and why it so is upon their hearts, why they so quickly come to us with this accusation, if God is good, then why is there so much evil? They themselves are terrified at the thought that God is sovereign. Imagine so completely a sovereign God as the one presented to us on the pages of Scripture and imagine now that He hates you. What a terrifying thought that is. No wonder the world values the teaching of evolution. No wonder they want a God preached from their pulpits who's weak and small. Yet what happens when this God, this sovereign God, loves you, loves you with a deep love, so deep a love, so complete a devotion, so eternal a commitment that nothing can separate you from his love, not even your own mistakes, not even your own scars, not even your own sorrow. What if the tears that fall in this life are reminders that we live in the hollow of our Father's hand? then surely such a father would use his providential care in all of life to ensure that no evil would touch us, or that if it did, that it must serve us. That is, whatever wickedness comes into our world, God will turn it to our good. That's what our earthly fathers tried to do, surely. Our earthly fathers seek to bless us, which is to our comfort. And they are broken sinners like us. How much more comforting is it to know that your heavenly Father, who rules all things by his hand, is your Father in Jesus Christ. Indeed, how comforting it is to know that you live in the hollow of his hand where nothing can touch you and where everything that comes must serve you. Now you are faced with this question, not do you see it, not do you experience it, but do you believe it? For we want God to prove it to us first before we put our faith in Him. We want to be like Thomas and say, I will only believe it if I can touch it, see it, if I can experience it. We're like Abram of old. God, I have no son. And what does God do? Does He say, listen, listen, Abram, here's how it's going to work out. Well, he takes Abram outside. He says, look at the stars. I did that. And I can give you a son. I who can name these stars can give you a son. It's not an issue for me. But do you believe me, Abram? That's why we read that Abram believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. We are called to believe. And that faith has a very particular character. Indeed, the Catechism describes the character of that faith for us in question and answer 28. In question and answer 28, the Catechism tells us that we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from His love. All creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will they can neither move nor be moved. Now notice, it doesn't say that the doctrine of providence is such a comfort to us because... Our lives are now effortless, unaffected, free from suffering, and perfectly peaceful. No, it speaks of adversity. It speaks of an unknown tomorrow. It speaks of prosperity and blessing. But it also speaks of our relationship with the Father. It uses relational words. It uses orientation words. It says we can be patient. 
with the plan of our Lord. Patience is something you give to someone. You're patient with your spouse. You're patient with your children. You're patient with your boss or employees. We can be patient. We can be thankful. Thankfulness is a relational word. Thankful to the giver of every good gift. We can have confidence. Confidence in our faithful God and Father. There are in these words great descriptions of the way that we orient our lives. Of the way that we turn in the midst of trials. In the honest reality of this veil of tears. Notice the honesty. When adversity comes, truth be told, we want a solution today. God, you're working all things for good, we say. Show us that good. We grasp at anything and everything. The passing once of an infant child after the funeral, one of the attendees in conversation said, you know, if one person gets converted because of the loss of this child, oh, it'll all be worth it. Which is the cruelest thing to say, surely, to a mother who is laid to rest her child. But it expresses that impulse we all have that we want to see an immediate, tangible, satisfactory to us result in the trials of life. But when adversity comes, providence teaches us to wait. To not run ahead of God. To not assume we know what He's doing. To not go, Lord, okay, I figured it out. I've learned my lesson. You can stop teaching me now. We can wait patiently about our, uh, upon our Heavenly Father. Not assuming we know what He's doing. But assured of this, that He loves us in Jesus Christ. And when things go well for us, whatever that means. That can mean our business is successful. That can mean our marriage is successful. That can be our joy is full. That our mental health is strong. And we don't pat ourselves on the back. And we don't look at others and say, if they only worked as hard as me. We come into the house of God and say, Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. I'm so thankful for the way that you've given me this life to live. I know the future may be uncertain and Given our natural inclination to be pessimistic and a little bit paranoid, we may think the future is rather dark. But we can look into that future without fear because we know that it will have to serve us at the behest of our God who rules all things by His power. And so we can have confidence for the future. And all of this is a truth that must be spoken to our hearts with great regularity. Here's one of the things we need to learn to do as Christians. And that is speak words to our own spirits. Because by nature, none of us wants to believe this. By nature, we resist. By nature, the devil, the world, and even our own flesh tell us that God doesn't know what he's doing. That God needs to prove himself to us. That we can be angry with God and pound our fists at him. We need to speak this word to our hearts from the word of God. We need to speak them in the light of what God's word says to us. Even those very challenging, difficult words. Listen for a moment to some of the hardest words in the word of God. 
In Romans 5 we read, Therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the hardest words. That's glorious, isn't it? That's comforting. That is wonderful to know. For whom we also have, an act, have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Again, not difficult at all. Lovely. Yes, we say yes. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. Oh no, we say no, Lord, no, not that. Oh, verses 1 and 2, yes. Verse 3, no, Lord, no, we don't glory in tribulation. We don't glory. Think of James's words, those very well-known words that we all can undoubtedly recite. James chapter 1. Right at the very beginning of his letter. The very first thing that he says to his readers, his readers who have been scattered abroad, who are suffering persecution, who are under the cross because they're Christians. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. No, we say, James, no. No, I can't do that, James. That's too much. I can't do it, James. We're not even anywhere close to what his readers were experiencing in this fallen world. We're not suffering the loss of our businesses, our properties, our standing, our loved ones. Our children aren't being captured and taken into slavery. Our spouses aren't being raped by cruel soldiers. The... the, Armies of the Roman Empire aren't oppressing us. But we can't say with such ease in the trials of our own lives, I count it all joy. We say, Lord, it's too much. And then we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians 4. And we find ourselves reading words like this. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all these things are for your sake. That grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a more exceeding, and eternal weight of glory. Now we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. These are the words that we need to impress upon our hearts with daily insistence. Because we are so quickly forgetful of them. 
One of the great blessings of having grandchildren is getting to watch them without any responsibility besides enjoying them. Their parents have to work out the problems. We get to just enjoy them. And the fun thing about grandchildren is you see in them, especially when they're young, our oldest grandchildren are four. And they're at that age, these two boys of ours, where they argue about everything when they get together. Who gets what toy and what game to play, what book to read. The only thing you can know is this, that if one picks it up, the other will want it for sure. We try and we sit them down and say, hey guys, you know what, there are things more important than these toys. Cousins are more important than these toys. Having fun is more important than these toys. Don't focus on the temporary. Don't focus on the small. Enjoy the big. But they're four. They don't understand it. So often we don't understand it either. The temporary gets taken from us and we think we're suffering. And we enjoy the eternal each and every day. You see, we need to bring ourselves as God's people regularly to the foot of the cross. We need to remember there the deep, deep love of God for us. We need to see that there His perfect love is poured out. And before we rush ahead to think about what God's doing, before we critique or criticize His plan for our lives, we need to remind ourselves that our vision is far too narrow, far too small, far too immediate, and far too self-centered. We tend to only consider what the Lord is doing in our lives, failing to see how the Lord is using us in the lives of many. We fail to see how the pain of a moment shapes us for an eternal joy in His presence, not realizing that today's plowing of the Lord's plan produces the harvest of righteousness we enjoy when the fruit is born. We need to preach this truth daily to our hearts, confident that whatever our Heavenly Father, who loves us for the sake of His Son, may send us in this veil of tears, that it is truly for our good. And that's not easy, people of God. It really, really isn't. When we're young, life seems so full of hope and promise and joy. And there are glorious moments of scintillating joy in them, where the beauty of God's good creation shines through again and we revel in His glory. We used to live in Scotland for six months. You have no idea what sunsets are like until you see them there. And you stand in awe of the painter who has made the sky so many different hues of color. There are moments when we hold a newborn child When we stand before the Lord on our wedding day, when we sit with our spouse driving country roads, seeing the beauty of the wheat as it comes ready for harvest. Moments where we can rejoice. But there are soul-destroying moments too. There are grievous, crushing moments. There are broken, spirit-scarring moments. Those are the moments the devil comes. Those are the moments he comes with his word. If God is good and all present, or if he's all powerful, then why are you suffering? And we wonder. 
Ah, but you see, we need to learn the words of the Apostle Paul. When Philippians 4 says this, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's utter confidence in the presence and power of his God frees him from the endless pursuit of happiness that this life promises and promotes. Everyone around us is running running to get something or running away from something, but everyone's running. The believer. The believer is like David. Though he was fleeing from Absalom, sleeping out in the wilderness under the night sky, away from his comfortable royal bed in the city of David in Jerusalem, Yet says this. He says, There are many who say who will show us any good. Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You've put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you, O Lord, alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's only a confession that we can make. When we have internalized and embraced the teaching of Lord's Day 10, summarizing what the Word of God says about our Father's fatherly care. And when we can say with absolute confidence, I live in the hollow of my Father's hand. Let's ask Him for grace to do that in prayer. Shall we pray?